Action Park Media. All right, welcome to Victory the Podcast. I'm Doug Allen. Kevin Connolly. No Dylan today, but we got a special guest. We got a special guest, and I'm excited because Jim Miller is a phenomenal writer who wrote an incredible book called Tinderbox that actually goes into in-depth detail about everything from the birth of HBO until now. And the good news is, guess what, Connolly? What? We did not get trashed in this nice. book at all. Nice. I'm I assuming mean, that's why I know Doug wanted to hold a grudge. So <laughs> if you would have heard to throw one on him, he wouldn't have been here. So yeah, I mean, you coming stories. In. Yeah, how you doing, Jim? Well, I had the paperback edition, don't forget. So <laughs> Anything could happen now. So behave today, Kevin. We need something. So, Jim, tell me what was this? I mean, you have written the ESPN book and the SNL book. The CAA you, book. The CAA book. And you go deep. He deep dives. And this book, to me... It was such a great read as someone who was, you know, their career was made by HBO. And I thank Chris Albrecht and Carolyn Strauss for for helping me get to wherever the hell I am right now to doing a podcast with Connolly. But, but tell me what the I want to go in deep. But what was the overall feeling of what you felt this place did that really created this great TV that we now have today? What, what was what was your you know, overall? Uh, I mean, look, I, I, I love disruptors. I mean, it's as simple as that. And, you know, you have HBO goes on the air in 1972 and you have a basic equation about the way we get entertainment in our homes up to then. Right. There were three broadcast networks and then there was PBS and like a UFH channel, like whatever. And in 1972, HBO comes along and basically says all the rules that are in existence, we're going to throw out the window. And it's just it was just an amazing story. And, you know, I spent a lot of time in the beginning because I don't think a lot of people appreciated just how close HBO came to being deleted back then. You know, it was owned by Time Inc. They were used to a lot of successes, People Magazine, Sports Illustrated, Time Inc. They didn't lose money on anything. It lost money its first several years and they were going to just basically shut it down. And then there were some really cool things that happened to keep it alive. But from that moment on, Whose I mean, vision is the central vision of this? And was it set up to be this disruptive uh, channel? It wasn't set up to be disruptive. I mean, look, uh, guys like Jerry Levin, Nick Nicholas, and certainly Michael Fuchs were important early on. And I think that one of the things that they did was instead of trying to look and see what the networks are doing and do the same thing, they did the opposite. So example, there were three things that the networks couldn't do nudity, violence, and language. So all of a sudden, if you're a comedian, like in the late 70s, what, what's your goal is to be on the Carson show, right? You'll get four and a half minutes, a network censor will sit down with you and basically do a colonoscopy on your sketch because there's certain things you can't do, right? And then that's it, it's over. So Michael Fuchs and Chris Albrecht and those people were doing all those comedy specials early on. They said, here's an hour. Take a whole hour, and by the way, we don't care what you say. So George Carlin literally does the seven words you can't say on television. He does a whole special on that. And as a result, you just keep on getting more and more people wanting the freedom of HBO. You know, if you're, if you're creating a show on HBO, if you're doing a special on HBO, the documentaries, everything was kind of like the Wild Wild West because you had so much creative runway, and it wound up having a multiplier effect because look when Larry Sanders went on the air it wasn't a gigantic hit but people in Hollywood are like wait a second you can do this and, and by the way they were also breaking other rules like Gary Shanley once sent in a show that was only 20 minutes long he, he once told Fuchs listen I gotta take a year off I'm just fried like you can't do that shit at, at networks right and so every opportunity they have to like be different they do it, and uh, it winds up being an incredible run. And the, and the Larry Sanders show, for whoever hasn't seen it, that show was so influential to me in my career, so influential to Entourage. You know, uh, Bob Odenkirk, who was on Entourage, was really the first time I saw an agent portrayed in a way that that I could sort of grip around it. And when we were doing Entourage, I, I used to say, how is Ari going to ever top what Bob did on, on Larry Sanders? So it wasn't a big hit. But it was this trailblazer, and I think 
the great creative minds, this is a little before my time, go, wow, we got to get to HBO now where we can do something like this? Yeah, absolutely. In fact, Oz was another big one. Tom Fontana, Chris Albrecht, who was running programming, said to, to Tom Fontana, well, he was actually running program on the West Coast at the time, and he said, what's something that you were never able to do at the networks that you'd always wanted to do? He said, easy, kill off the lead in the first episode. And Albrecht looks in and goes, go do it. Go do it. I mean, you know, you look at Oz, man, the violence and the, it was, there was, it was the deep end of the pool. There was, there were no boundaries. There were no guardrails. They could do whatever they wanted. And the idea of like network notes was really antithetical. I mean, HBO would give you thoughts, but at the end of the day, I mean, the creators and the, the show really dictated what went on the air. Right. And when, so Oz, obviously, incredible show. Sopranos is the game changer, though, correct? I Absolutely. Mean, that's the show that, how does that come about? How does, is Chris really the driving force behind getting David Chase to do that? And did people have expectations that David Chase could deliver something that would be culturally changing, you know? So I think, like, within a short period of time, you have, I mean, this is kind of crazy, right, to think back on, but you have Sex in the City, The Sopranos, and Curb Your Enthusiasm all within, like, two years. I mean, that's, you know, and Curb is still on. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I mean, like, you know, it's it's pretty extraordinary. I mean, in the case of Sopranos, I think there are two kind of inflection points that I look at. One is the idea that they decided, as Jeff Bucus, who was the president of HBO, said, we decided to do a guy with a hairy back and a wife beater as the lead of the show. I mean, that's that's... That's yeah. That's it. look. It's the, it, that's the thing about casting. I always said that about about Entourage. I would look around at the guys and say, "Hey guys, just so you know, if this show were on NBC, none of us are standing here. <laughs> maybe Grenier, maybe you, Grenier, but Dylan and Jerry and myself are not standing there." And it's true. Yeah. You know, I mean, they they took they took a big leap of faith with him, and for inst- for the rest of the cast. I mean, Lorraine obviously, Lorraine Bracco was incredible and Goodfellas and had a had a movie career, but. Everybody else was, you know, not really well-known. And the second thing is, when they tested The Sopranos, the pilot, came back, the reviews were not good. Mm. Like, people, first of all, people said what, you know, Chris Albrecht once said, people said what they thought they should say, which is, this guy is, like, killing people, (laughs) cheating on his wife, doing all these nasty things. We're not supposed to like him. We don't really know about this world. And HBO, a network basically cancels doesn't order the series right. with these kind of test results. And HBO, basically Jeff Bucus, Chris Albrecht, and Carolyn Strauss, just three people. By the way, it's not like marketing guys are in a meeting. It's not like any, like those three people that, fuck it. You know what? We believe in this show. We think there's something there. And uh, lo and behold, I mean, the show really takes off with episode five. How is it received college. when it first comes on? How is it received? You know, I think people are struck by the fact that it's a totally different milieu. They're captivated by the mafia, kind of underworld stuff. Gandolfini still, remember, before The Sopranos, Gandolfini was, I mean, true romance. And, I mean, he was a respected and, actor, but he's not a guy that you go traditionally would get that role. No, he's a character right? I mean, actor. He's a character actor. You're thinking excellent, about him. By and, the way, excellent character Yeah, but actor, honestly, right? such a, by the way, both of them, Imperioli and Gandolfini, such good character actors that I, I mean, I saw Get Shorty and I saw, um, uh, obviously, Goodfellas I, 500 times right, and right. still didn't even realize when I saw the show that those are the guys from that. That's how much they disappeared in the characters as far as I see. Right. And I think that, you know, the first couple episodes, people are kind of finding their way. But episode number five is called College. And everybody remembers it because it's when Tony and Meadow start looking at schools and Tony sees an old nemesis. And there was a big debate between this was the first big debate. And then it was like never again. But David Chase says, look, Tony's got to kill him. <laughs> I mean, that's what that's what that's what this world is about. That's what would happen. Right. I mean, that's right. what happened. And Chris is like. Does he have to kill him? Does he have to like? <laughs> Can they do the baseball like, bat thing and break like, his legs? And you know what, Chris basically says to Chase during this discussion, you know what? Um, he realizes that David Chase wants to make this real in every kind of way possible, and so he, you know, another thing that. I mean, can you imagine having that argument with like Les Moonves or yeah. some of those? There would be no chiefs? argument. There'd be no discussion. Forget it. It'd it's not over. getting shot. Yeah, We're not correct. giving the money. Chris says, "Go ahead and do it." I mean, college episode five, 
By the way, there's a later in later seasons, I'm sure you guys remember, an episode called University. Of course. Which is, I mean, those two are, they've got to be the top, yeah. two of the top 25 episodes of television ever filmed. But um, college, I think, from that moment on, The Sopranos is, is just on a whole different stratosphere. Right. Well, it's like, it's like you said, I think all of us, once we looked around, it was like, okay, is it okay that quietly we think this guy's fucking awesome, right? <laughs> like, it was, you're kind of looking around that it was okay to root for this guy. Yeah. I mean, like... Well, it's also, it's like Pesci and Goodfellas. There's a part of everybody who's like, you know what? I wish I could just take care of people who fuck with me. I wish I could <laughs> right, make right. sure that they respect me in a way. And, and you kind of do get weirdly some wish fulfillment out of watching a sociopath, you know? Like <laughs> yeah, right. But the of. brilliance then of the show, and by the way, to to refer to part of your question, David Chase was always a respected writer, but never had like a show of his own that was a home run. In fact, he had a deal with Burlstein Gray, for development deal. He couldn't come up with something. And, you know, um, Lloyd Braun was actually the one who said to him, why don't you do something about the mafia? Oh, wow. And, and uh, Chase looked at him and he goes, you know, I'm Italian. And uh, it took off from there. But I think that the brilliance of what Chase did was he also rooted all this in, like, real life. So the guy comes home to, like, a wife who's complaining <laughs> or they have a marriage. Their kid, His kids are screwing up. He's going to see a therapist, which at that time, by the way, there is this really cool thing that Chris Albrecht told me for the book, which was he's, like, literally they decide. So it was going to be on Fox. Fox says we can't do it. HBO picks it up. And right after they pick it up, he's on the phone with Billy Crystal, Chris Albrecht, and he's, and Billy Crystal's got to analyze this. They're talking about, he goes, oh, my God, I'm doing this great movie about De Niro, De Niro plays in a mafia guy and I'm the shrink. And, like, Chris Albrecht goes, what are the freaking chances? I mean, right. you you got to be kidding me. And it's like, I mean, obviously, they both Isn't that interesting, though? It happens. It does actually, weirdly enough, happen a lot. It happened with Entourage, too. Like, right before we got picked up, they told me Steve Martin just sold a show to them about a movie star and his friends. And I lost my mind because I'd been working for a couple of years on it. I think we, we talked about this. Yeah. But, but sometimes that happens. But obviously, such different tones. But still, you'd never really seen a mob boss go see a shrink and actually deal with anxiety. And it is, have you watched the pilot recently? Like I, that, that's why I was, I was thinking, I, I remember, I, I think I'm on actual record saying that the Sopranos is the best pilot I've ever seen. It, it's, I think, you know, and, and as you say, I I'm with you that it picks up to another level, right. but I, I watched that pilot in the last year. And like when the ducks fly away, I all of a sudden was like, kind of my girlfriend's <laughs> looking at me. She's like, are you crying? I'm like, I don't even know why I am. I just was like, because it was such a revelation to see a guy that strong, that crazy, actually break down and show people that it happens to everybody. And so it's so many, it's it's like walking into Baskin Robbins. There's 31 flavors because all of a sudden in the middle of all this, un, you know, mafias, you also have this like Shakespearean thread with him and his mother. Oh, I mean, genius. it's like, you could like, you could do a whole series just on that. You could do the idea, the juxtaposition between what he does you know, at work and what, like there were so many doors that could be opened yeah. uh, in that pilot. You just, you just knew. And I when mean, you cast like that, because Edie, uh, Michael Imperioli and Gandolfini and all of them, little Steven's amazing, but that just, I mean, those are as good of an actors that ever existed on television or film. You know? Lorraine what? told me that she was offered the, uh, the role of Car Carmela. And she said, I already did that in Goodfellas and I, I can't do it any better than what I did. So she wanted the therapist, wow. which was pretty cool. She That's... probably should have reconsidered that one, but but it counting? is, but it's so interesting. Like, cause you can't picture anybody, but of uh, course Edie doing it now. She's right. so damn good. And Lorraine obviously was so good. Yeah, in Goodfellas. Right. It's so it's, it's interesting. Yeah. So, so then, okay, so what's what's next? Sex in the City, which, you know, obviously we've dealt with a lot of, oh, what's the comparison between Sex in the City? But what I think is interesting about Sex and the City and fascinates me so much and to this day now is is widely seen as just normal. But what Sex and the City did that I, and I, I, you know, a lot of people ask me, do you like Sex and the City? I think Sex and the City is, at its best is amazing. But what it really did was show women talking in a way that we'd never seen before unless there's a, a precedent that I don't know about. But what, how does that come about? So Sex and the City is actually before Sopranos. And, wow, okay. And um, I think that one of the things that is kind of interesting for, for you guys is you have Darren Starr, who obviously had enormous success with Melrose Place and Beverly Hills 9210. He takes the Candace Bushnell, Bushnell columns and basically the, the idea of sex in the city, and he does something really smart. He creates four archetypes. 
So there, you know, you could say each one of the women is a cliche, but in a way they all had their lanes. Mm -hmm. You know, it's kind of like what you obviously did when you're creating these characters. Yeah. And I think that what happened was HBO didn't feel like it was funny enough. And so they brought Michael Patrick King in. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. And Michael Patrick King and Darren Starr have very different visions for the show. In fact, Michael told me a, a story that he gave his script for an episode to Darren and Darren gave it back to him. And Darren said, did you see my notes? He, and Michael said, yeah. And he said, you know, you took out all the jokes. <laughs> and so you had Darren Starr, who's like one hour kind of like soap opera kind of guy, yeah, right? He's Beverly Hills 90210, right? Right, right. So he's like, that's what he's doing. And Michael Patrick King is doing like a half hour comedy. And so it was really interesting to see how HBO managed that overlap. And I think one of the things that you clearly saw, no disrespect against Darren, was that at the end of the day, Sarah Jessica felt much more comfortable with Michael Patrick King and his vision for the show. And then Darren left, I think, after the end of season does two. Does Michael Patrick, does uh, Darren and Michael Patrick King work on the pilot at all together, or that's all Darren? That's all Darren. Because I actually, I, I mean, you say best pilot. I think that pilot is phenomenal. I really do. I think it sets up the premise of the entire show, which, in my opinion, and maybe people think of it differently, is, is can women basically act and have sex like men? And in my estimation, the answer was no. They will emotionally engage. I thought the pilot was amazing, and and I thought the show going forward was also amazing. So it's interesting that 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 you see it that way, and Sarah Jessica Parker saw it because I thought the pilot was very funny and very smart and very interesting. But I, I have a financial question. Financial for meaning: Who was the first one to go to HBO with the big payday request? Was that Gandolfini, or did Sarah Jessica and the and the Sex and the City girls do it before that? Well, Sarah Jessica, you know Kevin Huvain, who's Sarah Jessica's agent is really good agent he's a killer he's right? a, yeah. I mean, he's a silent killer because right. he smiles the entire time and he's just so effective for his clients we need him he Connelly. was he was attached he attached her as a producer in fact one of the things i mean darren wrote it with sj in mind and she was like yeah, i don't know i mean i've been doing i'm doing movies i can do plays you know she signed on to the pilot and then when she heard it was picked up she completely freaked out because she didn't want to be tied to something for like seven years. But they did say to her, we'd like you to be a producer. And that winds up being a very <laughs> significant conversation, both in terms of creativity and having a seat at the table, but also financially. And I think that, um, look, one of the things that HBO constantly did, because there's no real back end at HBO, and you don't even know what the back end is. I got into this in the book because it was important was they opened up contracts. They didn't have to open up Gandolfini's contract. And they certainly didn't have to go as high as they did over a million an episode. Because it, it was pretty tumultuous, that negotiation, right? It was like, He oh, walked we... out. Right. They, Chris Albrecht announced, first he called him a fat slob because he was so pissed <laughs> off. And then he shut down production. And what the, the smart thing that Albrecht did, though, was he knew that Gandolfini was so loyal to the cast and to the crew, that shutting down production was the thing that really kind of like that was going to bother. That was going to get under Jim's skin. That that, yeah. that definitely got under. It was a brilliant move because I said to Albrecht, I go, "Did you really want to shut down production? No, but I wanted to get to Jim in a way that nothing else could." And they they basically came to terms right after that. But throughout the history of HBO, I mean. I know what you guys started at per episode, and you guys ended up in a nice place. Yeah, we did. We did I mean, well. But that, that one thing I always said about HBO—they always, always, always treated us so well. They were always one step ahead of us in terms of—I don't know—fair, fair. I never, we never stood around going, you know, when a when a when a raise was appropriate, we got it right. And it just—I don't know. There was never. They were great to us until they, they canceled really, us when we were their highest <laughs> rated thirty minutes. But there was know. never that. <laughs> there was never that conversation of like, oh, is this going to be a problem? They just—it was—it was just smooth sailing yeah. for us. Right, and I think that that's—it that. winds up being like really smart because what happens is, I mean, you have people like David Simon and others who constantly work with HBO and it just leaves you this feeling of like goodwill right. that you want to come back and you also know that I mean it's happening with Sam Levinson with Euphoria now I mean he's doing other projects Issa Rae 
who did Insecure for them. She's doing other projects for them. They they want you, particularly in this uber competitive environment, right? Back in back in two thousand, no offense against Showtime, but you know, HBO was really the place to be. Oh, and they yeah. had the first pick of everything. Right. Know? It still is, but there's other people that are in their stratosphere now, right? Well, I mean, look, look what happened with House of Cards. I mean, I had to write about that. You know, HBO really likes it. They think it's interesting. Yeah, let's make a pilot. And then Netflix says to David Fincher, we're going to give you two years. <laughs> right. It's like, uh, I mean, that's... That's disruption. That's well, it's, <laughs> it, it's, well, it's interesting to look at the things that they passed on. And this conversation, I could really honestly talk to you, Jim, for freaking 25 hours because it's hard to go around. The Wire, I don't want to, like, short sell The Wire, one of the greatest shows ever, which I think is... You know, even almost as a whole show, you got to say that the wire is at the very, very, very. Top but I also the think the wire is even I don't know, it's even more groundbreaking in certain ways than Sopranos. It's even harder to understand how executives were like, we're going to put this on who the audience is going to be. And it was never a a very uh, commercially successful show, correct? It wasn't commercially successful. It didn't win. A lot of awards. But I will tell you this. One of my favorite stories in the book was Albrecht telling me, well, David Simon told it to me too. At the end of season two, I believe, maybe it was the end of season three, I forget. But basically, Carolyn Strauss says to David Simon, you know, let's think of something else. We're done. And David's like, no, 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 no. You don't understand. I've been working really hard. I have like a vision for the next couple seasons. And she's, yeah, I'm sorry. I think Chris, you know, it's just, we just, you know, and, and, David says to her, look, let, let me get in there. It's like arguing before the Supreme Court. And Chris takes the meeting because, you know, that's what HBO is. That's who Chris is. And it's about an hour conversation. And by the way, you, I asked Chris, what were you thinking before David came in? He said, look, I wanted to make sure that we were still going to be in business with him, but I was canceling the show. Mm. David Simon goes in and literally, Kevin, to your point, talks about his vision for the storytelling for the next two seasons, hmm. talks about why it's so important, talks about the things that he wants to do with the show that have never been done on television. And by golly, at the end of the meeting, he's got two more seasons. I mean, that, it's crazy that, because it doesn't work like that on network TV. For you, there's always would have to go to somebody and call this one and call that one. The fact that the guy could walk in with a canceled show and come out with two more seasons well, I also per got, Carolyn and Chris. I also got to say, though, specifically about David Simon, who I really, I really believe is one of the great, great geniuses that has ever been in TV and who I've told you the story before, but when I was going into Pitch Entourage, my agent decided to give me the Bible that David Simon wrote <laughs> for hilarious. The Wire and said, you need something like this to sell it. And I read it. I said, I'm not. There's, there's no universe where I'm capable of thinking two years ahead like this. And I just never did that. But David is so incredible and so good, so he did that. But the fact is he didn't really have leverage except, which is what I love about Chris, except to convince people that it was going to be great because not a lot of people were watching it. They weren't getting the critical acclaim that they wanted, which is mind-boggling because I think if that show came out today, it would sweep every Emmy and, and whatever. But well, they got critical acclaim. They didn't get the awards. Okay, it right. wasn't like, you know, the big, sexy Golden Globes kind of kind of thing. But, you know, I, I do think, like, if we had put it in a script, that, that, I, that meeting, you know, people would have said, no, no, it doesn't happen like that. Right, right. Like, Hollywood is not a meritocracy. Yeah. I mean, let's not get carried away here. Yeah. And I think that that's another thing that happens with, you know, with HBO. I mean, look, the idea that Alan Ball, who had gone, done a couple of network shows and was really depressed about his experience at ABC, he goes off in the space of several months. Alan Ball writes, the pilot for Six Feet Under and American Beauty. <laughs> I mean, like, cut it out. Yeah. And, and Carolyn Strauss had said to him, look, I was thinking about a show about death. And she gave him this book, and he went off, and he he just wrote it and, and based on that conversation with her, and that became Six Feet Under, which, wow. you know, obviously, I I do believe the finale to Six Feet Under. I was Under, about to say. I mean, one, one of the, one of the best. I mean, I mean, have you ever seen this? I don't. I don't, I don't care if you've finale. never seen one episode just of that the show. Finale. I just have never seen anything on television that I was that blown away by. And I, I swear, I don't want to keep talking like I'm, I'm cry all the time. I was crying, sensitive, like a baby watching this show. I was like, I can't, and I didn't even know the characters because I really didn't watch the show religiously. I don't know why I watched the finale, but yeah, I agree. One of the great, great hours of television. Not finales, not anything. One of the great hours of television I've ever seen. So. 
through all of these travels, and I want to spend a little time on Entourage. There's so many great shows on on HBO that we can talk about, and the comedy stuff, which Game of Thrones. I mean, you could just go on. You can go on and on, and and uh, you know, I just had dinner with Dice in New York. Doug's a big Succession guy too. Succession, but I want. By the way, can I just say one quick thing about Succession? Yeah, it's that still continues because Succession. They made a decision which was. A, we don't need any stars. We believe in this material. Mm-hmm. So we don't need any any stars at all. And second of all, how many network shows have you seen where you literally do not like anyone? Yeah. Right. I mean, I'm sorry, but even Cousin Greg, like, they're, who are you going to root, root for yeah. on this show? Well, I have my personal little, like, uh, thesis on, on Succession, which I love and I'm obsessed with. But I think... And I don't want to compare myself because Kylie will make fun of me to Matt Weiner either, who, you, you know, I got to understand Sopranos. Matt Weiner and Terrence Winter, two of the greatest writers, showrunners in the history they of television, both, are behind they both David came Chase. Out of, they both yeah, came they're, out they're of they're both like game. writing in the writers' room. And and, Actually, and Rob Weiss, pilot, I love you too, but you need to do uh, the pilot for Mad Men was was Matt's writing sample to get on The Sopranos. It's it's so insane, and I think that's Mad Men great. that is my personal favorite show that's ever been written. That's whatever. A, did it make you cry? I've cried at Mad Men. I've definitely cried at Mad Men, and I've also though what I looked at the reason I wanted to bring this up it's. I see so many similarities in Mad Men and Entourage, even though that's a much more sophisticated, smarter thing. There were storylines that were almost exact, and I'm not saying that Matt Weiner took it from us, okay? But You're saying that Matt Weiner stole your ideas? Absolutely not. But like Joan, you know, oh, they the Jaguar. S- yeah, they sell Joan to Jaguar. Ari sells uh, Lloyd to, to get a right. showrunner. We were we were first, whatever. But I'm not saying <laughs> I'm not saying you even watched it. And and I watch Mad Men in in awe and go, I wish I could write something like that. Succession, I have similar things, and my thesis. Is, which is why I want to get into Entourage. Entourage was about these rich white guys, essentially, and they weren't rich. They were street kids. But they were best friends, and they were loyal to each other, and they were always going to help each other out, where Succession is these rich white people who hate each other. They hate their family. They hate their children. They hate their wives. They hate everybody. And I think it gets away with a lot of stuff that people now criticize Entourage for. The things that Logan Roy says, because they're so actually meant to be mean, are so much worse than anything that came out of Ari Gold's mouth. Is it because it's a drama? Yeah, but I believe also, my opinion, and I don't know what you think, Succession is a comedy. There, there's drama in it, but I look at it as an hour comedy. I don't, what do you think about that, Jim? Yeah, I mean, look, I think Jesse's background was comedy, and it's it's wicked smart. And I think that some of the actors have talked about the fact that, you know, some of these lines crack them up. Um, I don't think Jeremy Strong thinks that way, but <laughs> I, do, I, I do think that at, at its heart, it, it, is, it is a comedy. I mean, it's sardonic, not... Yeah, yeah. Not, Broad, yeah. obviously. No, and I, I just be clear. I love it. Obsessed with it. Yeah, I think you it's do. Brilliant. I mean, yeah. he does. You got yeah. every time but, a new episode comes. But out I do. Day. I have this. You know, uh, everybody knows it. I have this resentment towards the universe <laughs> that wh- where they've somehow turned HP, uh, Entourage, which was this perennial Emmy nominee, which Obama's favorite show. New York Times writes this. What was your feeling when you went, you dug into the Entourage universe and what HBO felt about it? Well, first of all, I think a little bit of context. I think I'm not sure if you guys, how much history you explored at HBO right before, but, you know, you have all those amazing shows, right? And then HBO kind of goes through a bit of a period of difficulties. In fact, John from Cincinnati, which was David Milch's show, which I remember, yeah, you know, debuted right after the finale of Surprise. I mean, that's when you get that kind of success with all those shows that have led up to it, everything that you put on is supposed to be a success. That wasn't the case. So there's a period of time where HBO, people feel like it's when there was a headline called HBO over, you know, and people are really asking whether or not they can recapture the magic. Um, so I think Entourage appears on the HBO landscape at a time when they're they're desperate for hits. They They need to be part of, you know, zeitgeist. Dare, dare I use the, right, yeah. dare I use the word, the zeitgeist. And so I think that there was um, a lot of, it was funny, inside HBO, there was a great divide. I'm sure you know about this. Yep. Chris Albrecht calls it, you know, he said, if I had to bet on two shows in my career, uh, based on the pilot scripts, it would have been Sex and the City and Entourage. He thinks, you Thank know, you, he, just, he just <laughs> sees it clearly he understands what the show is. He understands what the characters are, and he's he's really sure of success. Um, people inside, not so sure. <laughs> By the way, it's interesting because 
I do think you had a female problem inside HBO, um, even though it probably wasn't apparent at the time. Um, but it's interesting why you might have a female problem there. And let's say with Sex and the City and Girls, there was a different margin of error. Right. Right. The, I, the dynamics of each show are unique to each show, but but similar. But I think that you know you have four characters. Yep. It's a, whatever. Um, there's there's a lot. I mean, you could teach a college course just on gender based on those three shows, mm -hmm. and, and really talk about. Comfort levels, public perception, stereotypes, what somebody can get away with, what somebody can't. I think that was there ever a time that you felt that HBO wasn't letting you do what you wanted to do? Well, at the beginning, obviously, it was really difficult. But and I will always say this, Carolyn Strauss, whether she loves the show or not, you may know better than me. I loved her and her thoughts and her opinions were really smart. Um, but at the beginning, they didn't believe in me at all. So it was just torturous notes after torturous notes. Once we got rolling, Carolyn would call me up and say, uh, specifically like that, that, that episode I was talking about where Lloyd gets sold, you know, <laughs> she basically said, I don't like this, but I'm not going to tell you what to do. And she let me do it. And, um, you know, uh, same with Chris, he told me when he didn't like something, but they were great. Absolutely fantastic. Really the problems for me started when Chris left HBO. That's when things kind of had a little more of a, a different tenor, um, where all of a sudden I was being told the show feels like it's not coming from the usual voice and yada, yada, yada. So uh, it was a little frustrating. But um, what did you get from your inside take from them on this? You spoke to everybody. I mean, I think that... Split you know, room. Sounds like a split room. Well, I, look, I think that there was a... There was certainly... An acceptance. Uh, everybody was very clear about the fact that the show was successful, and that sometimes isn't the case. It sounds like an obvious thing, but yeah. they really perceived it as as very successful. I think that you know one of the things that I tried to track was what happened at the end. You know, you took a you took the high road in terms of what happened at the end because I think when I was doing research, you did too. I mean, you guys were. You guys weren't mouthing off and bitter and complaining about you had had the, you know, rug cut out from underneath you. Right. I think you, I mean, at some point you kind of almost made it sound like it was mutual. Yeah, I said it many times and it wasn't at all. Right, yeah. right. And and so I think that was that was confusing for some people because I think people, some people inside wanted you guys to fight and stay on and or make more of a case about it, about right. why, why is this happening? Your ratings, your ratings, the final season were higher than, let's see, the next three replacements, I believe. Yeah. So, um, and by the way, we're talking about HBO, so we're really talking about a place that isn't supposed to be making decisions based on ratings right. anyway. And we were also get, still getting our nominations that they like. And, you know, Jeremy, I mean, it's a rare thing. Jeremy Pippen won three straight Emmys. That's not, uh, that's not so, common. So why do you think they canceled it? Well, I believe Michael Lombardo and Sue Nagel, I just don't think they liked it. I think it was a show that they didn't get. Well, they um, inherited it, right? They inherited it, and I think they didn't get it. And, and look, when I look back now... I definitely didn't see, and I like to think I was usually ahead of the curve. I did not see the culture shift coming and this kind of, and again, there's no bitterness about this. It is what it is, and everybody has to adapt and adjust, but this kind of anti-men, anti-bro, anti-rich you know, rich white guy thing that was really prevalent in, in the world. And you know, when we started on the show, and, and again, just to not defend myself, but the first thing I tried to do after this show was The Brick, which was an entirely African-American cast, and uh, Harriet Tubman with Viola Davis. So Entourage was specific to the world that I grew up, which was mostly Italian, Irish, and Jews, and Hollywood, which, not my problem, I didn't create it, but was mostly a white place. It just but, was. But I will tell you, Kevin, in the book, uh, I don't know if you saw it, but Doug is really kind of opens up and says he was looking at a lot of feedback that he was getting at the time. And people were saying that things were too easy for you guys and particularly right. for, for Vinny. Yeah. And so that's part of the reason why you gave birth to that whole Sasha storyline. Yep. And I think that in all fairness, and I'm not saying that they were right, but it was a big turn for the audience. It was a bigger turn inside. 
And I think some people like all of a sudden started to think, is the show going dark? Like what's happening? Yeah. And I'm not saying that you lost the agency of the show itself, but it's so interesting because when you do a show for that many seasons and everybody is like so tuned into it and knows all of your characters so well, like a little turn yeah. is like people took it really personally, big, which but is like, strange. But then yeah. like, wow, it was I mean, yeah. I get asked about it at Q and A sessions on the book tour. Wow. Like, you know, what that scene in the pool with Sasha. I mean, <laughs> my God, what uh, how did that You know, happen? it's really interesting because we you did know, get that a lot. But it is interesting that because like you look thing. at the successful sitcoms in the history of TV, whatever your favorites are, Seinfeld, Cheers. They don't change. Everybody is the same person that they were when they started. And what I was trying to do, whether successfully or not, I was trying to make a movie where people had arcs, where people, I mean, just Turtle, where Turtle went from this, you know, fat New Yorker to, by the end of it, this businessman, well-spoken, with, who's a health nut. And, and that was part of it, whether it was successful or not. My mind also, forgetting the criticism, also went like, let's grow people in different ways that aren't expected. And again, I'll always say whether it worked or not was, you know, for others to decide. Um, but I saw the problems coming in HBO before that, where they really started aggressively harassing me about notes and scripts um, before we ever went that. I actually don't remember that season I'm, being that problematic with them. I'm curious, Kevin, were you aware that, I mean, it was so interesting that you admitted it and people literally have talked to me about, you know, you're saying that. Were you aware that Doug had his kind of ear to the ground and was like looking in the public sphere for feedback about the show and was like somehow shaped by it or moved by it or could be influenced by it? Well, I think you always had your kind of ear to the street, right? I but mean, you like, knew it. You would send me the the sketches. Like there was some comedy sketch where everything works out. I mean, <laughs> Connolly, believe me, Connolly's got his ear to the ground. Oh, yeah. No, I, I, I was aware of it. And it's funny because that is one of the things that I would feel. And it would always usually come with, by the way, I love the show. I love the show. But <laughs> if I had to complain, um, you know, that was one of the things that it was always at the end of the day, going to work out, right? There was like yeah. some sketch comedy And were you show. shaped by it too? Were you listening? Like, would you... I, I thought I, I thought about it, right? I was on board with it, and I, I liked season seven, right? I could see how how it could it could could have rubbed people the wrong way or bumped people. I always tell the story about Chuck Liddell. Chuck Liddell said to me, he's like, listen, man, you know, I got enough problems in my own life. I like to sit down <laughs> and watch Entourage on Sunday and it makes me happy, and now you got a guy going through this thing that I, he's like, you know, so then the minute we did it, then everybody was like, wait, we want to go back to it being, it being, you know, great again. But yeah, of course, the, um, the thing you're talking about was like, oh, uh, the writer's room. I was like, all right, cool. I, I got an idea. Uh, you know, E puts on cool sunglasses. Yes, yes, I like it. They're, they're going around. But we always, anytime that anybody, uh, you know, parodied us, we were laughing. Remember, yeah. we, were, we were, there was the you one. You were, I was crying. Well, no, they did the one where they had all of us walking, and it was the same thing, like, that it works out at the end. But it was like, you know, the... Um, Jerry, the, a midget was playing Jerry, and uh, a girl played me, and there's like all the, all the stuff, and I was like, well, hey, listen, I just am glad that somebody finally acknowledged that I'm taller than Jerry. <laughs> do you do you do you, go, do you Google yourself during the show? Did you Google yourself during the show? Um, no, I was never really big into that part of it, and it's funny, like even the social media aspect we were talking about. I I can remember Jerry and Emmanuel like sitting on the couch, like giggling. I'm like, what are you guys doing? They're like. This Instagram thing, and it's so fun. You, you, you post a picture, and then, <laughs> and then you get mad if you don't get the likes. And, it becomes, and I'm like, oh, man. Everyone, you got to remember, this is like 2010, like, 11, that sounds, 12. That sounds like a lot of work. But yeah. I'm like, you guys seem like you're having a great time over there. So, But you um, know what I was on? I was on, because it wasn't really big social media. HBO had a site with comments. There were not a lot of comments. There were only be like 40. You know what I mean? So who knows what that like sampling was? the message was. board. The message whatever. board. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. the message board, there would be probably the same three jerk-offs were like, everything's going to work out. Yeah, but you're right. right. Like, people did want to see it. That being said, I have no regrets that I did that. I wanted to do something funny. Different. But aren't you guys glad, though? And I, I don't mean this in a pejorative way, but aren't you guys glad that you did the show back when you did as opposed to doing it now with all the – I mean, just social yeah, media alone, right. let alone, you know, the... the uh, listen, I, I think about these kids. Doug, Doug believes that social media would have catapulted us into another stratosphere, which may be true. But also, that's not even my thing. I really believe, whatever I ever do again in my life, that I understood the culture, the world, and what was going on. And I believe that I would reflect that today in similar fashion. So people would speak 
slightly differently, certainly in public, certainly in the office. Ari would never speak like that because he'd be thrown out. Ari Emanuel would be thrown out if he really ran around acting like that. But I, what I am very proud of with Entourage, besides the fact that the underlying message was always about friendship and loyalty, that we reflected the town in a way that people really appreciated because the amount of major people in this town that would talk to me about the show and how they watched it every Sunday night and it was the way for them to explain to their friends back home what they actually did. I'm proud of that. So I, I don't I don't ever look at it like what would it be like now or then. I just it was of the time and and people will have to view when it. When I was doing the CA book, um, people told me that, you know, there were obviously numerous scenes of you doing this with Ari, but I uh, people would cite the fact that you you were kind of fearless from early on standing up to Ari and being able to, like, instead of, like, being so, you know, solicitous and uh, obsequious and, you know, whatever you think, and you would say, no, we're not doing that. No, we're, no, we're not doing that. I hate that. Script. Or, you know, even when he said to you, wait, what were you doing before this? Or, you know, early on. Um, and that's why it I was, the show was always an anti-the-system. They were anti-establishment guys who were poor guys from New York coming to this, you know, weird, jaded world. And that's that was kind of the premise. You know? By the way, the other thing that people have asked on the book tour is, Jerry talks a lot in the book about obviously when he lost weight and you yeah. like he showed up and you freaked out. Yeah, yeah well, it became a discussion, right? Yeah. It's like, well, you, you obviously you want what's best for his yeah, health. I mean, I love Jerry like a brother, so right. I want him to be good. But, but you had to rewrite a lot of stuff. For I did. Just changed I did. everything. You know? I did. I mean, Jerry became the best looking guy on the show. I mean, he, and I always said, I mean, and I used to say to Adrian, I'm like, Adrian, like we don't want Turtle to have a better body than Vince. Like we right. all got to get in the gym and do whatever. So I don't know if Jerry told you, but I have directed the episode. Where I was the first one because I knew I was kind of tracking, so I knew that Jerry had, I knew he was getting there. So there's the scene where he's running on the Wii Fit, and I said, Jerry, man, let's do it. Let's cut, let's cut the sleeves off. And he was like, No, 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 I'm not ready for the sleeve cut. I'm like, You're ready for the sleeve cut. We cut his sleeves off, we oiled up his arms, we top lit him, watch it. Yeah. We put a top light on. Like, I'm, I made him tuck his shirt, and I'm like, Dude, you gotta tuck, you gotta go tuck. He's like, you, you don't make me look stupid. I'm like, oh, Jerry, I would never. Jerry tucks his shirt in, and like, we literally were like rolling, and like, Jerry was doing push ups. And when I knew he was just about gassed, he stepped up, and his just muscles were like popping out of his thing. He looks like The Rock. Yeah, that's really insane. Yeah, but I but I pushed him. I, yeah. he, he went to well, the yeah, something to the like edge that today with Instagram and so, and Twitter. Yeah, that would have just totally blown up. And oh, totally yeah. oh my god! Yeah, and that's yeah. that that's the other thing too. And I'm not speaking to about HBO or Entourage, but but what the pressure that and this sounds corny, but it's true. The pressure that social media puts on these these younger people today. I honestly don't know that I would have handled that well. From yeah. being totally, I don't honest. think you would have. I don't. I know yeah. I would have. Just it it because. It, it took me for social media a few years to not take it so personally, to not be hurt by things that people would say at first. I'm like, and then you realize that, you know, you realize the troll aspect of it. But those first few times when you get lit up by a complete stranger, you know, it hurts. <laughs> you want to fight. Know what I mean, yeah. And, and it's fight. like, what, what, you know, Justin Bieber, like these people that they have to deal with, with the social yeah. media aspect. I don't, I don't know that it would have been good for me uh, so, mentally. All right. So Jim, the book Tinderbox, it's, it's, uh, it's amazing for anyone who likes the film industry, television, or really just personalities. It really goes into it's all that, right? The mavericks of, of this business. But I want a couple of overall things. Like who, who did you in your research find to be one of the most difficult people that, that came out of this, that, that was a troublemaker that like great stories of, of almost taking shows down with them. What, what did you find on that? On the corporate side or just on the creative side? Probably on the creative side, I think more interesting, but either way, whatever you think. Well, I mean, look on the, I will say just, uh, even though it's corporate, Michael Fuchs is fearless. Mm -hmm. And he was, you know, he was CEO from 84 to 95. Then he got whacked in 95. But he loved to piss people off above. He was great with, like, if you were, I mean, he hung out with, you know, Billy Crystal and Gary Shanling, and they all, they all loved him and thought he was a great protector. But he was a ferocious prick in terms of corporate people and, and, and protecting HBO from what he considered corporate interests. And, uh, I think some of the most, <laughs> some of the most salacious and, and, and really tough stuff comes from Michael or about Michael. Mm -hmm. and, and I think that HBO needed somebody like that mm -hmm. because they were breaking a lot of rules. But I think that on the, uh, look on the creative side, it, it's amazing to see that if you go through the showrunners of HBO shows, you know, going back to, let's say, Larry Sanders and Oz, or even before that, because Martin David, you know, who created Friends, they did Dream, Dream On. Yeah. 
Um, so, you know, the, the road goes, goes back even further. I think what happens is you, you see that HBO creates this world where they, they want to be so supportive that you don't have, a, there's, you know, look, Michael Patrick King gets pissed off when they cancel the comeback. I mean, which was... Which he's right to be. Absolutely. First yeah. of all, he made them gazillions of dollars on Sex and the City, if nothing else. I mean, forget about the fact that Lisa Kudrow was great. And, um, you it know... It was a good show. I always liked it was, the comeback. It was, yeah. it was just way ahead of its time, but they should have kept yeah. it... They could have kept it going. I mean, Michael was upset could've about that. Could have let my pilot go, too. Two um, of my pilots. There you go. Um, Laura Dern with Enlightened, she did with Mike White. I mean, that was a really tough situation because... I think that was one of those situations where HBO didn't manage things well because Laura and Mike were co-executive producers. It was Laura's initial idea, then Mike wrote the pilot. And it's like, if you're the network, what do you say? I mean, I used as a caption of the photo, they said to Laura, listen, we got a writer for your show. And they said to Mike, we got a star for your show. Mm -hmm. Right. It's like... So who? tell me, tell us a little, because also anyone who wants to deep dive, Enlightened First Season, I think is brilliant. It's tough to watch. She's a difficult character to, to kind of grab onto because she's so tough and, and bipolar or whatever it is. So tell us a little bit about that. What was the process after that show gets going and what were the problems? I mean, the, the problem basically, well, first of all, it's an audacious, audacious role for Laura Dern. And Mike White created White Lotus, which was, I think, one of the best shows in years, but. Yeah, and he's doing a sequel too. Yeah, I can't different wait. different yeah. cast, different yeah. location. But I think that what you have there is a character who, once again, not you know, Amy Jellicoe, not exactly lovable. Yeah. Right. And it, there's kind of like some, you know, proverbial nails on the chalkboard moments. But she is as well fearless. Laura was fearless in the role. And I think that at certain key moments, Laura talks about this and Mike talks about it in the book. They have different visions for what the show should be. Mm -hmm. And if you're an executive at HBO, that's a really hard thing to triage. Yeah. It's, it's, you know, it's like two powerful people that you care about. And Casey basically brings them together. Casey Boyce, who runs HBO content, he brings them together and he says something really simple. He says, there's no show without you and there's no show without you. So we're either going to figure this out or cancel it. And they wound up canceling it. Wow. But, wow. you know, it was... It was a really difficult. Uh, I think that was one of the more, the, the more difficult ones. And then, of course, you know there are these shows. I mean, they spent twenty five million dollars on Lewis and Clark, and it never gets <laughs> off the air. Jesus. I mean, you can, you know, vinyl was a ground war in Southeast Asia. You know, I think sometimes you hear, oh, Mick Jagger and Martin Scorsese and Terrence Winter, and well, we don't have to do anything with that. Let them yeah. go, and that turned into a rat fuck. Um, <laughs> Uh, but I think, you know, a lot of different teams came on to rewrite that as well. So the script was... My my roommate from college is one of, can, one of the creators of Vinyl, Rich Cohn, who I haven't seen in 30 years. It's very, very strange with Terrence Winter. So Wait, last question. Before I, I just want to say what the... For you, per, I'm asking, you know, so you've written, you wrote the CAA book, right? So you've, you wrote the CAA book, you wrote the SNL book. So you've done the deep dive, right? So you obviously have the drill down. When the book's coming out, do you give somebody a heads up? Like, hey, I went down this road or that road, and 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 what are those calls like? Just to, just in general, in your in your career, with you know what it, you know, it's like at a certain point you're doing your job, but what has there any blowback from people? Like, what's what's that? Like, I got to imagine Ovitz wasn't. Uh, well, I did. Uh, <laughs> she didn't get a, off the Christmas card list. That's Michael. Ovitz, Ovitz we're talking about. It was Michael probably the biggest no, age in the history uh, of this town. Uh, no, uh, actually, Ovitz, Ron Meyer, and I did. Uh, a sit down at the Directors Guild two, oh, okay. two months afterwards. They hadn't been together in 21 years. It was my secret wow. goal to get the two of them together. And we, right. the three of us, did it on stage. But for HBO, I, I, I did 757 interviews. Right. It's a little pathological. So no one's after but, you. No one's mad. At you. No, I mean, look. I think. Oh my gosh. I mean, I, I think I'm really glad that uh, you know a lot of people have come out and said that they really liked it, and more importantly that. They can't find mistakes because that's something that yeah. that's the third rail. Right. For well, me. that's just not true, right? That's, that never that, happened that, or whatever. Right? But I do think that look, all of this is subjective, and these books are always like a Rorschach test. And you know, I think that there are people who worked at ESPN who, when I, I saw one of them two weeks ago, he said, "I still think you didn't give me enough credit in the book," <laughs> and I I told you that great story about whatever. And so I think that's happening um, with the HBO book. I mean, some people, you know, it's it's hard because. 
I mean, remember the other thing about HBO, I was doing sports, like got to do, you know, yeah. Thrill in Manila. Right. They're doing boxing. They're doing Wimbledon. They're doing real sports, sports documentaries. Then the documentary world and Sheila Nevins and all those awards, um, movies of the week. And, uh, you know, all these, there's a lot of different moving parts to HBO. Yeah. So I think some people, you know. They want more airtime. I think, yeah, and some people thought that, you know, maybe I gave someone too much credit, someone. So it's like a Rorschach test. You can, and I can always tell what somebody thinks about somebody else because the first thing they'll say to me is, boy, you were really nice to so-and-so. <laughs> and I was like thinking, well, so-and-so just thought that I wasn't that nice to them. I like thought you were really nice to Connolly, actually. So. <laughs> well, I, I mean, so I, again, Tinderbox is the book. It's really, really amazing. But what's the legacy at the end of the day of HBO? And what's your feeling of this place? Was this a great, wonderful, creative place? Was this a bunch of lunatics? What was it? I mean, look, the legacy is that right now Netflix and others are doing to HBO what HBO did to the networks, right? Yeah. So it's like when the Lord wants to punish you, he answers your mm. prayers. Right. They got they got to the mountain, and then all of a sudden it's like, wait a second. And that's why that House of Cards things, right? They lose, yeah. you know, Breaking Bad, Mad Orange Men. is the New Black. Mad Men. Mad Men. They could have had Mad Men. And House of Cards, I mean, those are just four obvious examples. But they are to fight 40, for their— 40, Jim Miller. 40. 40, that's <laughs> Michael right. Michael Imperioli, Eddie Burns, Michael Rappaport. Anyway. Um, but that's—they're in the fight for their lives, and now they're with even new owners, more new owners. AT&T yeah. disappeared. So David Zaslov's coming on. You never know what a new parent's going to be doing. You know what David Zaslov said on CNBC, right? We have the greatest properties in the world, Entourage being one of them. Right. You mentioned it, Kevin. I saw that. Kevin gets shy when he I hears saw this. That. So, but well, anyway, Jim, this was awesome. I could I could honestly talk to you about this for hours. The book is amazing. Everybody should get it. I have two copies which you haven't signed yet, so you're going to need to do that. And of course, I forgot to bring it. So, um, thank you so much for Thanks coming. Thanks for having in. me, guys. Yeah, it's a pleasure. Everybody, Tinderbox, get it. It's on Amazon, and you could have it immediately. Is there an audio book also? There people is. People who are illiterates or no? There you want me to do the voiceover for it? <laughs> who, who read it? You? you read I read it? the interstitials, oh, and we had a male actor and a female actor do the Were you happy with their performances? <laughs> <laughs> we could have got you, they're, Dylan. They were great. <laughs> All right, Tinderbox is the book. Uh, everybody, last episode, right? Yes, or no, before last episode. Yeah, no, Christmas, last episode for sure, but yeah. and New Year's. Okay, happy New Year's, everybody. Merry Christmas, happy Hanukkah, everything you want. And uh, Victor, the podcast, I'm Doug Allen. Kevin Connell. Jim Miller, we love him. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, wow.